0: You're listening to audio from 7 Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. By a show of hands, how many of you looked into a mirror this morning? Okay, that's pretty much everybody. You guys look good. Looks like you did your job. It's a part of our daily routine. I, I, w- I would say it's probably, unless you're camping, it's, it's pretty difficult to miss a mirror. They're so common in our life that it's easy to take them for granted without stopping to reflect on how they work. Now, if you were paying attention, there was a dad joke in there. <laughs> All right, some of you. Okay, good. So how do mirrors work? Well, first, you need to remember how light and color works. You see, the color of something is defined by which colors of the visible spectrum it absorbs or reflects. So, for instance, when we say that something is yellow, what we're saying is that that object absorbs all the colors on the visible spectrum except for yellow, and then it reflects yellow. So that's why we see yellow. So take a banana, for example. When light hits a banana, it absorbs all the colors of the visible spectrum except for yellow. And that non absorbed color, yellow, is reflected back to us. And that's what our eyes see. And here's what happens with a mirror what makes a mirror work is that the the, the thin metal layer absorbs none of the colors. And so it reflects back all of the colors. And what's more is that that thin metal layer is ultra smooth at a microscopic level. And because it is so smooth, the image that's reflected back to us is not distorted or diffused, but rather it is meticulously maintained so that what we see back to us is a perfect image in the mirror. In fact, if the uh, surface were not perfectly smooth, you would not see the image Clearly, and when I say it's like microscopically smooth, I mean even a piece of paper is not microscopically smooth. Think about it like this: if you if you take a tennis ball and you bounce it off the wall, if it's got a smooth surface, it'll it'll bounce right back. If you throw it straight, if you get here early enough, you'll see sometimes the kids throwing the tennis ball uh, against the surface of the wall. But if that surface were not smooth, let's say it was like a a craggy kind of rock. No matter how straight you threw it, it it can hit off one of those uh, other surfaces and go in that different direction. That's how a mirror works. It's meticulously smooth, microscopically smooth. And because of uh, its inherent properties, it will bounce back a mirror Reflected image. It is intentionally designed with a material like aluminum or silver that inherently, by its very nature, is reflective. By its very nature, it, uh, it, it uh, reflects light. It does not absorb light. It reflects back whatever it beholds. Did you know that you and I are created like Mirrors. You find this out on the very first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Greg Beal observes that God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him but something else we either reflect the creator or something else in creation why is that well it's because it is in our nature we are inherently reflectors you will reflect something it's in our nature to bear the image or to reflect the image of something and if it is not God it will be an idol if not the creator then creation in other words Just like mirrors, we are intentionally designed, inherently, to reflect what we behold. But unlike mirrors, we actually start to become like what we reflect. See, a mirror, once the the object moves away, the, the mirror doesn't change, right? It stays the same. But we're not like mirrors. This is where the analogy differs, the way the way we're designed is that whatever we behold, if you behold it long enough, with enough attention, with enough affection, with enough allegiance, you actually start to become like the thing you behold. Over time, the object of our gaze starts to mold and shape us and we become like what we behold. Have you ever noticed if you spend time around someone, eventually what happens? You start to say things they say. You start to mimic one another. There is this mutual reflecting that happens. You can think about your, your friends or spouses or even parents. You, you, ju- you just can't help it. And we see this all over the Bible that we become like what we behold. Let me give you just a quick couple of examples, it's actually all throughout the Bible, here's some of my favorites. In Exodus chapter 32, when the people of God worship the golden calf instead of God, God says they have become stiff-necked just like the stubborn cow they worship. Saying, you guys are worshiping this cow, now you've become stiff-necked like them. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the people of God have worshiped idols made by hands, these wooden statues that can't see or hear or feel, God curses his people with a sensory dullness that mirrors their idols. In verse 10, God says, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy and blind their eyes, so they are just Like their idols. In 2 Kings 17, when the people of God are defeated and they're heading into exile, God explains. They despise his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. And listen to this. They went after false idols. And what happened? They became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should uh, should not do like them. Pastor Bob Thune is helpful here. It says when we worship false gods, we become like them. Our worship of money makes us greedy and stingy. Our worship of power makes us harsh and demanding. Our worship of approval makes us anxious and fearful. Our worship of success makes us busy and restless. The more we avert our gaze from the true God and chase these idols, the more ungodly we become. Friends, there is a principle that runs all throughout Scripture. We become like what we behold. It's everywhere. And that transformation, as we become what we behold, will either be for our good or for our downfall. It will either lead to your restoration or it will lead to your ruin. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. Ultimately, what you behold, you will become either for your restoration or your ruin. This morning we look at Esther chapter 5 and we see two characters. We see Esther and we see Haman. And as I was reading the text this week, I thought, these two characters provide case studies. You know, case studies, they're, they're really helpful. They don't give you quantitative data, but they give you really qualitative data. And I want us to look at them this morning to see two case studies. One. A case study that leads towards restoration. And the other, a case study that has a trajectory towards ruin. So that's how we're going to divide our text this morning. If you look at verses 1 to 8 in Esther, you will see that she is a case study. A trajectory towards restoration. If you remember in the last chapter, we saw Esther had started to turn her gaze towards the Lord. And now she starts to lean into her identity as a member of the covenant community, and you start to see her story take a turn, and you start to see the restoration process in her life. And second, we look at verses 9 to 14, and the story of Haman, and you will see a trajectory toward ruin. We find in this chapter, he is hell-bent to destroy anyone in his way, and his desire for power and approval will lead to his destruction. Why? Because... We become like what we behold. So let's jump into the text and examine our first case study. Esther, a trajectory towards restoration. Here again the word of the Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. If you remember in the last episode, we saw Esther confronted with this reality that the time had come for her to take hold of her Jewish identity and to stand up as a mediator of her people. Earlier we find that Esther has a Persian name and a Jewish name, and it's kind of set up like she's got these two identities that she is wrestling between. We found out about the antagonist of the story, Haman, He is the grand vizier. He has been elevated to second in command in the empire. He has manipulated the king to issue an edict of death for all Jews in every province in the Persian empire. And Esther is in this unique position because she is both royalty and Jewish. So if there's anyone in the empire who can plead the case of her people, it's her. However, there's a predicament. No one in the king's cabinet, no one except the king's cabinet can come before the king without a summons. Not even the queen. Anyone who dared to enter into the king's throne room uninvited stands condemned to death. It's not simply that if they come in and he doesn't like what they say, he will put them to death. Meaning, if you enter in, you're already condemned. The axe is going to fall unless unless the king holds out his golden scepter. In fact, if you um, look at several reliefs from the Persian period, they depict Persian kings sitting on their throne, holding a scepter, flanked by, by soldiers, holding an axe, standing at the ready to fulfill the execution of death to any uninvited visitors to the throne room. Only at the king's discretion could he extend clemency with his golden scepter. And that would pardon the offense and allow the visitor to keep his or her head. See, Esther's role as a mediator for her people is inherently risky. It's inherently costly. But we saw last week that she has come to believe in the promises of God to preserve and protect her people. Last week we saw Mordecai essentially preaching the gospel to her, reminding her to have faith in the God of the promise. And in keeping with her renewed faith, she began to prepare spiritually to enter into the king's throne room. You remember that? She said, I and all of my, uh, my servants are going to enter into a period of three days of fasting. And she told her cousin Mordecai, gather all the Jews in Susa and do the same. It's time for prayer and fasting. Then after three days, she prepares to go before the king. In verse 1, which I just read, there are six references to the words king and royal. It's as if the author, by repetition, is trying to build up the tension, the palace, the throne, the king. That's what she stands up against, absolute power king has all the power Esther has none in fact the architecture of the Persian throne room was designed to make everyone who entered in feel small the whole point of the throne room was to display the glory of the king see the throne was massive there was the, the the throne room had uh these 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 large pillars standing 65 feet high So that no matter where you stood in the room, every line of sight was focused on the king. Architecture gives a message, doesn't it? In this room, the architecture says, Tremble before the king who rules on his mighty throne. So Esther has prepared spiritually for three days. She has prayed and she has fasted and now she prepares physically as she puts on her royal robes. And I want you to see that this is more than just dressing the part. She is using wisdom, thoughtful planning, to give herself the best possible chance at an audience with the king. By her very dress, she wants the king to be reminded that it was he who made her queen. Verse 2. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Esther exercises wisdom as she approaches the queen. You know, if we remember from last week, she hasn't been summoned before him in over a month. So you don't see her just marching straight into the throne room and start making demands. Rather, the text tells us she she stands outside of the throne room. She's really... Uh, wise and shrewd. So, so she's not going into the throne room. She's kind of standing to where uh, she's outside, but she's kind of in his line of sight so that maybe he would see her and welcome her in. And That's exactly what happens. She waits for him to notice her, hoping she would win his favor and welcome. And he does. And we see Esther, uh, uh, a great example of faith and wisdom. See, a lot of times we want to pit these two against one another, and they go hand in hand. By faith, she's willing to step into the unknown. She doesn't know if he's in a good mood or a bad mood or if he's going to extend the golden scepter to her. She doesn't know if the king will receive her or if he will receive her plea for her people, and yet she's willing to take the risk. That's faith. At the same time, she doesn't just barge in foolishly. She gives us a balance of bold faith and thoughtful planning. And we would do well to learn from her example. I think about evangelism. The faith to put yourself out there. To risk being um, identified with Christ. To say things that are often polarizing and hard to hear. And that takes great faith to do that. But you can also do so in a way that is brash and Um, harmful it's not winsome it's uh, forceful see that would be all faith and no wisdom but you can do so in a way that is careful and thoughtful and the Bible calls us to both we would do well to learn from her example so back to Esther the king sees her and invites her in he extends the golden scepter and she receives his pardon and she's been granted an audience verse 3, the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, we find that the king is in a good mood And not only does he welcome Esther into his presence, but he invites her to ask him a favor. All of this sounds like just a favorable coincidence. But let me remind you of something C.S. Lewis once said. He said, Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. See, everything about this story seems like just, just happen chance, like these just favorable coincidences. Though God is never mentioned in this book, he is the main character in the background, providentially directing the course of history through the desires and decisions of, uh, of people. See, don't forget what Proverbs reminds us. Chapter 21 and verse 1, that the king's heart is a stream of water and the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So it's not just mere coincidence that the king extends clemency to Esther. It's not mere coincidence that he uh, gives her a blank check to ask him for whatever she desires. The Lord is directing the desires and the decisions of the king. It's like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord holds the heart of Ahasuerus in his hand. So as the narrative unfolds, not only does the king invite Esther into his presence, but he invites her to ask him for anything, even up to half of his kingdom. Now that phrase, even up to half of my kingdom, is is ancient Persian hyperbole. He's not really going to give her half of the kingdom, but he's basically saying, I am in a very favorable and gracious mood. Within reason, anything you ask of me, I will grant to you. Now you would think, Esther... This is the moment you've been waiting for. Ask for the pardon and clemency of all the Jews. Remove, repeal this edict of death. You would think Esther would go for it and make the ask. However, Esther has a plan. Instead of the big reveal, she says, King, my king, why don't you and Haman come to a feast that I have prepared? And what we know of King uh, Ahasuerus at this point this guy loves to eat and he loves to drink he loves to party and so she, he says of course let's go let's do it so he accepts the invitation and then brings Haman verse 6 and as they were drinking wine after the feast the king said to Esther what is your wish it shall be granted you what is your request even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled so if you're keeping track this is the second time the king has said ask me for anything you want verse 7 then Esther answered My wish and my request is this if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. So now this is the second time the king has extended that invitation for Esther to make a big ask. And if you're reading this for the first time, you would bet okay, now is the time. Now she's got him ready to go, he's, he's, his belly is full, his heart is glad with, with wine. Now she can ask for whatever she wants, but instead she waits. Some have read this and go, maybe she's uh, too timid at this point, uh, maybe she's waffling. I don't think so. See, Esther has a plan. So she invites the king to a second feast in order to show the king an exaggerated amount of regard and respect. Just consider for a moment. When she asks the king to repeal this edict of death, she's essentially asking the king to admit that he was wrong to do it in the first place. And for a man who is so prideful, so arrogant, so full of himself, that's not going to go well. So in other words, what she's doing here is she is trying to... um, Fill her account with a lot of favor, a lot of approval, because she's going to write a big check. You want to have money in your account before you write a big check, don't you? That's just like accounting finance 101. A man of pride with a sensitive ego like this king is not predisposed to, to respond favorably to being told basically you were wrong to do this in the first place. I think Esther is using very careful wisdom, thoughtful planning, in order to set up the scenario that when she does finally make the ask, she has maximal credit in her account so that she can make a big withdrawal. This is a great example of wisdom. Wisdom is being thoughtful to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, and with the right motive. I'll say that again. Being, uh, wisdom is being thoughtful to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, and with the right motive. And when you line all those things up, you are exercising wisdom. Now that's the narrative of our case study. What can we learn from it? How do, I, how do we see this trajectory towards restoration? Well, if you remember from last week at the end of chapter 4, we see Esther leaning into her Jewish identity. She's praying, she's fasting, she's received the the gospel of promise. Her faith has been renewed and transformed. In other words, you see Esther beholding the Lord. She's turning her gaze to him. And as she reflects him, she's becoming like him. I want you to think for a moment about the details of Esther's story. Her parents have died. She's an orphan. And if that weren't enough, as a teenager... She was taken against her will into the king's harem. She had no choice in the matter. And now she's the queen of Persia. And what I want you to know is that all of these things explain her. They tell you something about her story, but they do not define her. And it's really important that we learn that distinction. There are things that explain you, but they don't have to define you. A lot of times we get it backwards. We take the things that explain us, and we say, now those define us. Of course, all of those details are significant in her life. It is not insignificant that she's an orphan. It is not insignificant that she has been abducted out of the safety and community of her home to be put into the king's harem. All of those things are true, and they make impactful consequences in her life. The details are not insignificant. They are a part of her story, but I want you to see that she does not allow them to be the controlling parts of her story. They explain her, but they don't define her. And that is a key distinction when it comes to who you are and the identity that you live out. All of us, friends, are going to have things that happen in our lives. Here are three things. I, I, don't, I, I, cannot, I, I may not know your name, but I can tell you these three things will happen in your life. You ready? One, you will sin and make mistakes. Right? And, and, and those will have consequential realities to them. Number two, you will be sinned against and you will be hurt. Right? So far I'm two for two, aren't I? Right? You will be sinned against. People will do things to you and harm you in ways That are real, hurtful, significant. Sometimes they take a day to get over. Sometimes they take a lifetime to get over. Number three. You will experience the tragedy and suffering of living in a sin-soaked world. Am I three for three? Yes. All of those things are going to happen to you. It's just a reality of living in a broken, fallen world. Now listen. All of those things will provide things in your life that explain you. It's like when you sit down and you say, hey, tell me your story. And if we get the long you know, version of it, I will hear ways you've made mistakes, ways you've sinned. I will hear ways that you've been sinned against. And I will hear ways that you have just dealt with and, and had to live in the, the, the tragedy and suffering of this world. And while all of these experiences explain the details of your story, how you got from point A to point B, listen to me. If you are a child of God, they do not define you. They do not get to tell you who you are. Ultimately, who you are, who you will become, will be what you behold. Now, it may be that you behold some of those experiences in your life. But when you do that, you're letting that define who you are. Dr. Richard Lentz, who's written extensively on identity and idolatry, says this. The way in which we have been created really has to do with this fundamental biblical conviction that we are reflectors. See, I'm not making this stuff up. We are reflectors. We are images. We are mirrors, if you will. And so that whole metaphor of the human being that reflects its environment, reflects its context, reflects its idols, reflects its God, is absolutely core from the beginning in Genesis to the end of the canon. And of course, the scriptures start not with what is wrong, but with what we were created for. So worship is also the experience of becoming like what we behold, like what we desire in the positive sense of that world. What he's saying is that in the beginning, in Genesis It's all set up that we are made in the image of God to reflect him. And we're supposed to just behold the Lord. Where everything goes wrong is when our first parents start beholding something other than the Lord. We are created, he goes on to say, to reflect God, to behold God. And so idolatry is kind of turning that dynamic upside down. So instead of worshiping God, we start worshiping other things. But it, this dynamic of reflecting, is still pretty, is a natural dynamic in all of us. We still find our identity outside of ourselves. We find out who we are by, we don't find out who we are by looking on the inside. What he's saying is this. You will become like what you worship. You will not find your identity from the inside because that's not how mirrors work. That's not how you work. You will find your identity by something outside of you. Something outside of you will define you, will identify you. The question is, what will it be? We are hardwired to be reflectors. You can't change that. Reflecting is not optional for humanity. The question is never, will we reflect, but rather, what will we reflect? And friends, what you behold, what you reflect over time, Will start to define and shape you. The identity is all about being shaped. The question is, who or what will get to define and shape you? So think about Esther. She could have leaned into being an orphan and said, That's my identity. My identity is, I'm an orphan. Or she could have said, My identity is a victim. I mean, has Esther been victimized? 100%, 1 million percent. She has been a victim. But she does not let that become her defining story. It explains her, but it doesn't define her. Or she could have said, I'm the queen of Persia. That will be my fundamental identity. See, these are all things she could have chosen. I want them to define me. But she doesn't. And if you think about each one of those identities would have led to a different trajectory in her life. So for example, if she had leaned into being a victim, And said, that is what is going to define and shape, identify me. Well, when Mordecai came to her and said, we need you to stand up for the people, she would have said, stand up for the people. I'm done doing that. I've been a victim. I'm going to stay silent because what I've learned as a victim is to self-protect and self-preserve. That's what victims do. That's what drives them. But she doesn't allow that to define her, though it may explain her. Instead, what does she do? She leans into her identity as a child of God. That's why she said, if I perish, I perish. I I can give up my life. Why? Because I am leaning into my identity as a child of God. And he's got my life in his hands. She came to believe that God had brought her to this moment. So what does she do? She leans into being Hadassah, the myrtle blossom in Hadassah the desert. And with her renewed identity comes the healing power of belonging to God, being loved by God, and being helped by God. And it starts to change not only how she perceives herself and who she is, but how she's going to live her life. She's exercising wisdom as she takes a bold and faithful risk for the people of God. She's on a new trajectory of restoration because she is beholding the Lord. And while you don't get all the glimpses of it here, as New Testament readers, when we know who Jesus is, don't you see her becoming like Christ? Don't you see her standing up for her people against all risk, just like Jesus did for us? She's becoming like him. Why? Because she's beholding him. That's our first case study. A trajectory of restoration. Now let's look at the second one, Haman. A trajectory toward ruin. Verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Okay, so I want you to picture this. Haman leaves the party full of joy. There's no one happier in the kingdom. He's second in command. He is powerful. He is respected. He actually has the number one in command in his hand. He's been able to manipulate and get what he wants. And then Esther, the queen, has invited him to not one, but two private dinners. His plan to exterminate the Jews is written into law. Everything is going his way. Everything. He has power. Fame, wealth, prestige, and yet it's not enough. Mordecai will not bow down to him, and it undoes him. You'd think that with everything he has, the snub from one insignificant person who's going to die in a few months, you think that would just roll off of him. You'd think he'd be able to let that one small little thing go. But that's not how idolatry and sin work. It's never satisfied. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them all the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. There's a lot of irony there when it says that Haman restrained himself because he kind of does the opposite of restraining himself in what follows. See, what follows is Haman's pride and his need for approval and praise. So he gathers his friends and he starts telling them about how awesome he is. He's like, You know how wealthy I am? Think about the legacy I'll leave behind with all these sons. Then he starts listing out all of his accomplishment, accomplishments, all of his promotions. All of it is a way to say, look at me. I am someone special. I am so important. In fact, you know what? You're so lucky to know me, Haman. I'm worthy of every bended knee. I'm worthy of everyone bowing down. And I will not be satisfied till I have every single person in this empire bowing down before me. Do you hear his need for approval? Do you see his need for validation? He needs everyone to say, Haman, you are so important. You are so special. Verse 12, and then Haman said, Even Queen Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited by her together with the king. Now listen to this. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now what's already obvious to us is now stated emphatically. He says this, I've got everything, power, fame, influence, riches, but it's not enough. In fact, it's all worthless to me. Mordecai becomes the pebble in his shoe, the fly in the ointment, the rainy cloud on his parade, and he is hell-bent to put him away. Verse 12, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then joyfully go with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So instead of speaking wisdom and temperance, his friends and his wife speak right into his pride and folly. And they suggest murder and an insanely tall gallows be built to make a point. Now I know none of our tape measures have cubits on them anymore. So let me convert this for you. This is 75 feet high. There's no cranes. There's no lifts. There's no power tools in ancient Persia. To put this in perspective, the average two-story home here in Waltham is about 25 feet high. So this is three of those stacked on top of each other. It's crazy. All to make a point. It's essentially him building a billboard saying, I'm Haman. I'm important. I'm someone special. You must respect me. You must fear me. You must bow to me. What is he doing? He is beholding power and glory. Ultimately, he is beholding himself. His identity is in public recognition and control, and he craves approval. Every time I read his story, I think of James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's boastful. He's arrogant. He is the living picture of pride and folly. And if you know the story, you know the scene is heavy with irony. Heavy. If you know the story, you know that the height of Haman's gallows will only serve to humiliate him in the morning. If you know the story, you know that this is the beginning of the end for Haman. And his trajectory for ruin is already set. You see, he has become like the false god he worships. He beholds power, and so he's become demanding. He beholds approval, and he has become anxious. He beholds success and he's become restless. He sees Mordecai as a threat to his pantheon of gods, of power, approval, and success. And so now he is determined to get rid of him. Even if you haven't read his story, this display of gratuitous pride and violence just seems like he's headed for a ruinous trajectory. So that's his story. That's that's the narrative So let's land the plane. I want you to first consider your trajectory. What you behold, you become, either for your ruin or your restoration. That's the thesis of Esther 5. These two case studies are meant for us to consider our own trajectory. And I want you to see that the material difference in their lives. I bet you if we sat Haman down, we'd find out he has those same three things happened in his life. He's made mistakes, he's sinned, people have probably sinned against him, and he's, he's trying to figure out life in a broken and fallen world. In that sense, the, the, the playing field is level, but what is the material difference in their lives? It is the object of their gaze. Esther turned her gaze to the Lord, and a process of transformation and restoration began. Haman doubled down on his pride and self-exaltation. He doubled down on looking at his own reflection in the mirror. You could say that Haman beheld himself, his own importance, his own glory, and it sends him down a path of destruction and ruin. So the natural question you should be asking is, what am I beholding? What do I behold? Who or what do you worship? Who has your attention who has your affection now let me say something about Haman he is a very extreme example and that's important because it's it's meant to 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 put on full display the total uh, path towards death the extremity of example is meant to help us learn the principle but idolatry is not always as obvious or as violent, or as extreme. Oftentimes, our idolatry can be extremely subtle. And so don't think, well, unless I'm like Haman, then I'm good. That's not the goal here. The goal is to learn the principle and then apply it to your life. Because the reality is that all of us have things in our life that we elevate to this inordinate position in our lives. Like, it's okay to want a promotion, Haman wasn't wrong for being like, I'd like to climb up the Persian ladder. That's not wrong. But what was wrong is when he made that the the goal, the goal of his life. Now, if you need help diagnosing or finding your idols, something that can be helpful is to consider your emotions. So let's think back to Haman's story. If you track his emotions, you find his idol. Why? What happens when, when Mordecai doesn't bow? What happens? Well, he gets Inordinately angry. In fact, he was right to feel angry in one sense because Mordecai is supposed to bow to him. It's a matter of respect. He's supposed to acknowledge his position. So to see Mordecai not doing that should have provoked him. But do you see his provocation went to insanity? It was inordinately angry. So follow your emotions. What what causes you to go into a tailspin? What makes you happy? And maybe more importantly, what happens when you don't get it? See, it's right it's good to be happy. But when you don't get it, what happens to you? When you don't get your way. What makes you sad or depressed? What are you afraid of losing? What is that thing when it's when it's Uh, questioned, or it gets taken away, or it's threatened to be taken away, you start to get real nervous. You start to get to where you're positioning yourself. What do you feel like you have to have to feel important? Like, if I don't have this, then I'm not important. I'm not significant. See, all of these are good diagnostic questions that if you'll spend some time considering them, you'll start to uncover the idols of the heart. I believe we also put a printout in the back today that has a little one-pager from Tim Keller with a lot of these questions to help you think through those idols. It's not enough just to look at Esther and go, oh, that's nice, good for her. Oh, look at Haman, that's bad for him. The goal of all of this Paul tells us in Romans that this was written to us, what? For our instruction. These aren't merely stories to to just like keep out there. These are stories meant to shape us. So first, consider your trajectory. And second, behold the Lord. It is the material difference between Haman and Esther. And friends, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't just happen. You will not just on your own, without intention, behold the Lord. There's just too many distractions. There's just way too many other options. Beholding the Lord requires a fixing of our gaze. Intentionality to direct it somewhere. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. It doesn't say I have accidentally Stumbled into the house of the Lord. No, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Even in this verse, you see, what happens to the one who sets the Lord before them? I will not be shaken. doesn't mean I'll not have things happen that can shake me. It just says, because I've set the Lord before me, I will not be shaken. Because why? God is a steady foundation, a firm foundation, an anchor, a refuge. So you must intentionally set the Lord before you. That is why we harp on the importance of weekly gathering as a church family. Because it's a reminder, a a weekly rhythm to go, okay, whatever you did this week to not set yourself on the Lord, let's get back on focus. Let's set our gaze on him. That's why reading scripture regularly is mission critical to the path of restoration. You need intentional time with the Lord So that he remains your object of greatest affection and attention. It won't happen accidentally. You must do this intentionally. And as we close, remember that every story whispers the name of Jesus, even this one. Why? Why does every story whisper his name? Because the goal of Scripture is to always point you. Jesus so that no matter where we are in the Bible we can be reminded again of where our gaze should be fixed because when we behold Jesus we will become like him and friends he is all over this story because God is the author of history and the author of the Bible every single story in the Bible is traced by the pattern of the gospel every story whispers his name just like the people of God and Esther, we too are under an edict of death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of our sin, we stand, under the, uh, we stand condemned under an edict of death. And just like the people in the book of Esther, we too need a mediator who can deliver us from death. 1 Timothy chapter 2 For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, Christ Jesus is the mediator. The one between God and man who gives his life for our sin in our place. Where Esther risked her life, Jesus gave his life. That's why, unlike Haman, Jesus is actually worthy of our gaze. And he is actually worthy of every bended knee. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll close with this, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore,